Hello, my name's Mike. You're watching Watch It Baptist Church online. At uh, uh, this point, we are partway through a series looking at the letter of 1 Peter. And on this occasion, I've come to uh, a place that overlooks the sea. So you might be able to hear a little bit of waves in the background as I'm talking to you. We're going to have a look at this next passage, uh, which is 1 Peter 2, verse 13 through to chapter 3, verse 7. So we're going to read that first, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how we read the Bible before we then go on to have a look at what the passage is saying to us. So let's begin by praying and then by reading. Lord be with us, grant us that special gift that is understanding by your Spirit. Help us to make room for the Holy Spirit to guide us as we listen and give us understanding too. Amen. So here we go. It's not a short section, but let's give it a go. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behaviour of their wives, when they say the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. But this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Okay, so let's start by talking a little bit about how we read the Bible. There is stuff in here, in this passage, to do with slaves that's not so familiar to us 
because we don't have slaves in our culture. We're not slaves ourselves and we don't own any. So perhaps it's not so easy for us to live in that situation. Many of us, however, are wives or have been wives or will be wives in the future. And similarly, many of us have been or will be are husbands as well. So perhaps it's in those areas that we feel that there's a strong resonance here. And it may be that that chunk of the text has leapt out at you as we've read it. The thing I want to land on as we begin is this. I think the Bible is way too important to take any shortcuts when it comes to understanding what God is telling us through it. Let me say that again, but maybe in a slightly different way. I am so keen, so enthusiastic, it's so important to me that I understand God's message that I'm not going to stop at first glance and accept that the thing I see immediately has to be the whole of the thing. It isn't always popular to look behind the immediate understanding, the thing that looks obvious. But I want to encourage you that if you are willing to do that, however unpopular it might seem to some Christians, actually you are doing something worthwhile. There's an important technique in Christian understanding. I know it by its Greek name, which is exegesis, which means reading out of the text. And in order to do exegesis well, it's really important that we understand context. So that's not just the history, although that's crucial. So the historical context of what's being written, when it was written and where and under what circumstances. But we also need to bear in mind literary context. That means what else is written that comes around it? What else does the same writer write? It's important that we bear things in mind like this so that we avoid some of the errors that have been made by the church in the past. And I'm going to give you one particular example. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says some things that appear to be very limiting about the role of women in the church. But in the same letter, he says things that seem to be very empowering for women in the church. Literary context means that we don't read the limiting things and ignore or sidestep the empowering things. We need to be able to say, well, rather than assume that the first glance is right, how about we look at the broader literary context and work out maybe what Paul, the writer, is driving at? We will need to do some of these things as we look at these verses today. Having said that, let's begin by looking at some literary context. So this is a letter written by Peter. Peter is one of the 12, the entourage of Jesus, if you like, often referred to as the apostles or the 12 disciples. He saw Jesus executed and he saw him again after his resurrection. He's writing this letter to a group of churches. So the letter will get carried by land uh, and sea if necessary, but I think probably in this context, yes, by land, and then circulated around a group of churches in different cities and regions uh, that are part of what is now Western Turkey, but at the time was, was part of the Roman Empire. So he's written it to them. And in that letter, he has already said, before we get to the stuff that we've just re read just now, he's already said, the resurrection of Jesus has brought about new life for those who trust him. Now, he calls it new birth. 
He's also said that being certain about the future changes our present or has the potential to change our present. We live differently and he calls that living hope. And he says there's an invitation for us to join into God's family. He refers to that as inheritance. And there's been a reference to heirs, uh, those who inherit already in uh, the reading we've just read. He's made it clear to us that to trust in Jesus isn't to be given some kind of get out of jail free card uh, or a golden ticket. Instead, it's an invitation to start living a fulfilled life now. So it's not about escapology. It's not about escaping this world that's around us. It's about living a fulfilled life in it, knowing that it will be part of a new creation later. Peter has said that God's relationship with us uh, is when it's fulfilled, supposed to empower us and encourage us to live like he does. So we absorb or accept or take on something of God's nature. And as a result, the love that he has is love that we live out too. And he's talked about belonging to a community that's being built. And he calls that living stones. Now, that's all happened already in just a couple of chapters, two and a half chapters. So here we are looking at the next bit. And as we begin looking at it, I want to ask you a question. Do you know that God has limits? I got asked this question at Bible College uh, in a lecture. It wasn't just me. Everybody was asked it. Does God have limits? And I thought, oh, I know the answer to this one. Forgetting that um, much like if, if you watch QI, the obvious answer is often the wrong one. And um, so forgetting that very often we had that scenario, you know, does God have limits? I put my hand up and I said, no, he has none. And the, uh, the lecturer, he's a guy who later came and spoke at my induction at Watch It, said, um, ah, because he does actually. And you might not realise it, but he does have limits. He is limited by his character. So there are some things he can't do because it's not possible for him because of his character. He can't lie. He can't cheat. He can't be unjust. He can't be... Um, mean-spirited. These are things that are beyond God. He has limits. And I want us to think about what our limits might be. Not so much things that we can't do, but things that we ought to consider that we should be limited in. So let me tell you about a guy who I know as Uncle Bob. He's not actually my uncle. Lots of you, I'm sure, have had people in your life who've been called auntie or uncle and aunt, really. So Uncle Bob isn't my real uncle, not biologically, uh, he's a friend of the family, and he served with the military in Northern Ireland. He served with the bomb squad. And as a result of that, he said he's probably watched more films on video than most people, or than lots of people. Now, as a result of working alongside the bomb squad, he knows how to make a bomb. Remember he telling me this, I was a teenager at the time, and of course as a, as a teenage boy I found myself slightly horrified and also slightly weirdly excited. You know how to make a bomb? So he said, yeah, I can make a bomb. I think it said at the time, so some years ago, he said, uh, give me £2.50 and I'll be able to go out and buy the ingredients to make a bomb. And, um, and this was a very odd experience. It later turns out that it's very easy to find out how to make things. You can even films forever telling you some of the key ingredients you need. I have no idea how to make a bomb and I'm not encouraging you to learn. But, but my point is, Uncle Bob knows how to make a bomb, but doesn't make them. He understands something, he knows how it works. He has developed knowledge, but what he does with it is his choice. 
I've learned over the years, and my dad before me wrote a PhD on, no, didn't, wrote his um, undergraduate dissertation on, uh, the English Civil War, and particularly Oliver Cromwell, who rose to power as part of a, a determined effort to make sure that the king was accountable to the people he governed. Now, I've got a lot of time for Oliver Cromwell. I think he did some awful things, but some of the things he wanted to achieve were important that they happened. So, I know about a man who led a rebellion and killed a king. But I am not going to lead a rebellion or revolution, and I'm not going to kill anybody either. I have the knowledge, but that doesn't mean I only do one thing with it. I have in the past sometimes been coached for playing football. I was once part of a football team that actually did quite well and went quite a long way. I was at uh, an undergraduate myself at college at the time. And I learned lots about how a good coach coaches you, the instructions they give you and the things they tell you to look out for and do. But that didn't mean that I had to not think on the pitch. So when the game started and I was out there playing, I still had to think, even though I'd been well coached, I still had to make choices on the pitch about what I was going to do in the moment, even though I was well coached. And this just takes us back to this understanding of how we read the Bible. When God calls us to himself, when Jesus rescues us from sin, he does not tell us to stop thinking. He doesn't tell us to switch our brains off. He encourages us instead to use wisdom, to know, to, to take what we know about him and how he does the world, how he does life, how humanity is supposed to be, and apply that in situations, including applying it to how we read the Bible and how we follow those instructions. So, Peter in this passage, quite early on in this passage, in verse 17 says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom, do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. In one verse, just in verse 17, he says, Live us free and be God's slaves. And what does that tell us about how Peter thinks freedom is supposed to work? Because I don't think it means that he thinks he, he wants to give you freedom with one hand and take freedom away with the other, or that he says God does that either. There is something about that a crossover or, a, or a, a weaving together of freedom and responsibility. We are free so we can think about how we carry that freedom through. It's very easy for those who are oppressed, whether that's oppressed wives uh, who are oppressed by their husbands or slaves oppressed by masters or citizens oppressed by government. We know about that in our modern world as well as in the past. Or even as employees being oppressed by a boss, it's very easy for us to feel that we're supposed to be free. So we should really push back. Almost I think there's a song in a, in a musical, musical is called School of Rock, but stick it to the man. It's that kind of like, you have the freedom so you can tell everyone else where to, where to go. They can all get lost. But Peter says, freedom comes with responsibility. And we know this because he follows up his freedom declaration with discussion about submitting. He doesn't follow up freedom with entitlement. He follows it up with submitting. 
problem with our culture, and it's something that I think we often sort of breathe in almost by accident, is that we tend to think more in terms of, well, if somebody oppresses me, I have the right to fight back. Or if someone has hurt me, it's appropriate for me to push back. Even perhaps to say, I will only submit to those who are willing to submit to me. And I don't think Peter goes anywhere near that in his description, is his commentary on freedom. Not only that, but he would have been around Jesus as Jesus said, don't only forgive those who forgive you or only love those who love you. Forgive as your father has forgiven you. That's the guide. That's the lead. That's the example to follow. Don't follow the example of those people who are around you, that sort of human nature. Follow the divine nature. Pass on to others what the Father has passed on to you. We talked last time about how important mercy is. And we're still talking about that now. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And so submit to others. And he, Peter uses Jesus as an example. And, and over a few verses, he, he comments, he does a little commentary on Jesus and submitting. Verses 21 to 23 is that. And at verse 23, he says this, Jesus entrusted himself to one who judges justly. He submitted. He didn't try to even the score. He saw a bigger picture with God at the heart of it. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, Aslan, in his great sacrifice, wins by submitting. Not only that, but he's able to see why he wins and describe it to others. So he talks to others about how the White Witch, who is kind of the enemy of Aslan in that story, only could see sort of retaliation and revenge, evening the scales. But Aslan then goes on to talk about magic deeper still. The ability to see a bigger picture in which submitting is a winning move. Let's head to Romans. Now, Paul writes this in, in chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Human experience is deeply unjust and frustrating. It's painful, it's bruising experience to be human. We know this from looking at Ecclesiastes uh, a little while ago. But none of that human experience, that pain or that bruising, can overcome the love of God or break it. And it's that love that shapes who we are and how we interact with the world around us. I want to go back to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And I'm going to read them from the NIV first, but then compare them with a couple of other versions. Peter writes, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God and honour the emperor. Now let's hear those same verses in the NRSV. As servants of God, live as free people. Yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honour everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Quite similar. And then I want to have a look at a third version. This is the message. And it says this. Exercise your freedom by serving God, not by breaking the rules. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. 
love your spiritual family, revere God, respect the government. Peter is telling those believers in Turkey that their relationships are important. He's just, literary context again, he's just in the previous verses talked about how God's love should flow through us as we take on some of his nature and that has an impact on how we treat others, on the, on the love that we are doing, not just the love that we say we have. He says this relationship matters with other believers, it matters with God, it matters with human authorities, it matters with the government. You may think you don't have a relationship with the government, but you do. Every time you, and this may never happen to you, I need to own up and say it's happened to me, every time you get a speeding ticket or a parking ticket or just get an invitation to, to make your tax return or even just look at your pay slip and think, why is so much money going to the government? That forms part of your relationship with government. I did read recently, I can't remember who said it, but somebody who said, when you get a parking ticket, you should rejoice that the system works rather than feeling annoyed that it's got to you. Those relationships with others, inside and outside the church, with authorities, with God, with government, they matter. And being set free, Peter says, isn't blanket permission to do whatever you want. Your old life is gone, and so your way of approaching these things isn't what it used to be. It is now infused with Jesus' way of thinking. And the risk is if we don't do that, we fall into one of the biggest traps that the Old Testament ever talks about. And it talks about it very briefly, but it shapes so much. At the end of Judges, so just 21 verse 25, Judges as a book just shows a long sl downward slide in attentiveness to God from the people of God. And that last verse says, everyone did as they saw fit. And that is damning. From the writer of Judges, that's damning. He's not saying, yeah, people made up their own mind. No, he's saying everyone did whatever they felt like, rather than what a king would have told them or what God would say to do. And so God goes on to send prophets and then kings in order to try to put that right. Structures and rules, Peter says, are to be respected. Freedom is not a pass to make trouble. Peter says, our father will put things right, which means we don't have to. There doesn't need to be any kind of holy crusade in Jesus' name to turn over all the structures of the world. Because do you know what? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did not take on the Roman Empire. He didn't even take on the local civil authority. He did ask challenging questions and he made people uncomfortable if they were in positions of responsibility and power. He had words for people who made snap judgments, for those who are willing to punish others for things that they themselves might be guilty of doing. He didn't try and wreck the system. And Peter, I think, maybe has this in mind as he writes. There are, and have been for years, systems that need to be challenged. It's right that Christians have been at the forefront of the civil rights movement in America, of the end of the transatlantic slave trade as it was um, outlawed in Britain in the 18th century. It's right that we champion access to justice. It's right that we stand with all of those people who aren't white in our culture and for whom that gives a disadvantage. 
it's right that we do those things in Jesus' name. But Jesus never trained a militia. We've got to be careful we don't try to use a militant approach because we think somehow that's faithfulness. Peter would say otherwise. I've been talking for a while. I want to bring things to a close. I would say there were two really important things here that I want to make sure that we take away. One, submitting doesn't mean no change. Because what Peter's asking people to do here is to submit, not to try and adopt, adopt some kind of doormat theology. And it's important to notice that when Peter writes here, he writes directly to women. He doesn't write to men and tell them what they should tell their wives. He writes to wives and says, you're free people. You make your own mind up. I'm going to encourage you to act in a particular way. He talks directly to free women and he is radical. He focuses instructions on the reality of the life they actually live in. And much as Jesus didn't try to overthrow the Roman Empire, not exactly. So Peter isn't telling wives that they should try and take over from their husbands. Not because he doesn't think they're free, but because they have a way of responding to their freedom that involves submitting. And he's told his audience that this is something Jesus did. They are, wives are, to live as believers who love and revere and respect in the situation where they find themselves. And we know that this is radical, not least because of what Peter does next. So he has instructions for husbands and he says, in the same way. He wants the husbands to understand that he's expecting the same attitude from them that he expects from wives. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that this is a passage that creates a hierarchy or demonstrates a hierarchy between men and women, you are not to accept that because that's not what Peter writes. He says in the same way, same vocabulary, a spouse submits. So husbands submit to wives by treating them as free by treating them with honour. And actually, when you look at the historical context, there you go, literary and historical context, you're, you have to be aware that wives were typically either glorified housekeepers or employees or property, all three at once. And Peter does not expect husbands in the church to treat wives like that. He expects them to treat them as free, to treat them with honour, and to accept that they are heirs with you. They will inherit wives' will, just like husbands' will. So husbands, don't go thinking you're better, because your inheritance will be no, no greater than your wives' will. Now, it does say weaker partner. Now, Peter refers to a weaker partner. I think what Peter's doing there is speaking from the world he's in, possibly because he has yet to be shown by God anything different. So there is an assumption that women are a weaker partner because they don't have the physical strength and they don't perhaps have the same academic capacity. That was the assumption of the time, and Peter's not trying to overthrow that. But he does say, wives are not second-class human beings. They are heirs with you. They are free as well. Secondly, submitting doesn't limit freedom. It's a challenge to love your neighbour as yourself. When we do not submit, we fight battles. And we fight them for ourselves, for our own benefit. When we love our neighbour, we submit to what our neighbour needs. When we don't submit, we put our needs and wants front and centre. And we start behaving as if we're owed something, as if we 
are entitled to things. And do you know what? Grace tells us that's just not true. Not in any way at all. Any moment you find yourself thinking, well, you know, I've lived here long enough, I'm entitled to, uh, or I've got a degree, I'm entitled to have a bigger say than somebody else does, or I've been a Christian for longer, Simon. So none of that works because it's all grace. So the minute you start thinking you're entitled to something, you're making God into a liar. We don't have entitlement. We have freedom and the receiving of love and the ability to pass that on. Submitting goes beyond campaigning for our rights as well. And it does something else really important. It challenges us on where we find our value. So if we are preoccupied with showing other people that we're valuable, then what we're effectively doing is campaigning for them to treat us like we're special. And that doesn't have to be, no, it shouldn't be our priority. Our priority should be, my value is in how God sees me. And if I need somebody else's approval or value, then I'm somehow diminishing what Jesus is already offering. One last thing. When we are the kind of people who will fight for our rights, who will look to get what we feel we're entitled to, we end up being combative. We end up fighting. We end up showing the world that what, those who follow Jesus believe is that we will get stuck in nice and early to make sure we get what we deserve and that we won't be beaten down and we won't miss out. And so what people then learn is that that's what Jesus is like. He is sharp. He is harsh. He will punish. He will demand. He will expect. And that's not the Jesus that we know. So we need to make sure we don't represent a Jesus who isn't real. Paul in 1 Timothy says that God wants everyone to be saved and that desires that all should come to him. Peter says in verse 15, it's God's will that by doing good, doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And the message puts that verse like this. It is God's will that by doing good, you might cure the ignorance of the fools who think you're a danger to society. Let's show that by submitting, we can create a healthier, warmer, more loving community. Let's not be frightened to submit because it might make us look weak. And instead, let's follow the example of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, help us learn what it means to submit, to follow Jesus' example, and to truly represent you in the world. Amen. Okay, it's been a long session. Uh, so I'm going to quickly finish it with these three questions. Number one, how might I get a better understanding of my value to God? Question two, when I don't submit, what's the victory that I'm trying to win? And does God need me to win that victory? Question three, in what situations do I find it difficult to submit? And what can I do about that? Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for enjoying the, uh, the sea behind me. Uh, and I look forward to catching up with you again, and we'll continue our look at 1 Peter. Take care and God bless.